everyone, I'm Abby and this is Educators Out Loud, a podcast dedicated to reclaiming the teacher narrative and creating a space for educators to engage in dialogue about the complexities of our profession. So I'm relatively new to teaching. This is my fifth year teaching high school history in New York City public schools. But before New York City, I taught abroad in Paraguay with the Peace Corps and also taught literacy and English to adults in Chicago. An unspoken part of teachers' job description is to either adapt or tactfully ignore the ways the political tides dictate what we are, quote, supposed to be doing in our classrooms. Without delving too deep into the variety of policies mostly created by non-teachers, like the expanding role that private corporations play in our public schools, budget cuts, threats to our safety and gun violence, standardized testing requirements, stagnant and in some cases declining salaries and pensions, and the increasing threats to our ability to collectively organize, the Janus decision in the Supreme Court potentially delivering a huge blow to the future of unions, I felt like it might be cathartic to create a little space for teachers to discuss where these larger social, political, and economic issues intersect with our everyday lives as teachers. The first episode is an exploration of people's experiences with the very first days of school. I started off by interviewing a few friendly folks at Prospect Park in Brooklyn, New York. Here's what they had to say. If I say first day of school, what comes? is there a story that comes to mind or a thing that you always did? I think back to school shopping used to be like the best. And not only that, I think like, well, I wore a uniform. So it was really hard to kind of show your individuality with the uniform. So the only way we got to do that is through our shoes. So that and hairstyles. So I think my favorite shoes used to be Hillies when I was in elementary school. So I think I was probably about in the third-ish grade. And it was like shoes, like regular sneakers. And then they had wheels at the back of them. And you would slide on your heels across the like ground and stuff. It was really cool. Yeah, my mom always gave us sweaters for the first day. (laughs) And I remember in third grade, I had this, like, gray sweater with, like, fluorescent pink and green, like, stripes in it. (laughs) And it was just really hot. (laughs) And then, like, when we came home, my mom was like, all right, you can wear summer clothes to school for the rest of the week. (laughs) Uh, Anything come to mind? Yeah, I don't want to be there. That's what comes to mind. (laughs) Yeah, I think the first day of school, I remember crying a lot on the very first day of school. That's, that's, it was a long time ago, but I think I cried and I didn't want to go. But then I know that after I finished, my mom told me that I didn't want to come back home and I wanted to stay at school. I don't remember this too much, but that's kind of the vague memory I have of the first day of school. Um, I was born in the Congo. And we moved here when I, not here, but in in Quebec, which is in Canada, when I was seven. And I'll never forget the first day because, first of all, I had started school way before the kids um, in that school. So usually we start school around three years old in most African countries. So, yeah, I got there. I knew how to read, how to count, which was not the case of the kids in my class. And of course, I was the only black girl. So when I sat down, everybody was in a little circle. And I remember precisely who it was. I won't cite their name. (laughs) But um, yeah, they moved aside because they didn't want to sit next to me. So that was my first memory. And I, yeah, I remember feeling like I did not belong. And uh, I guess as a teacher, um, Miss Noel didn't know what to do. So that's that. I have memories of kindergarten. 
I do. I remember um, being really lost, and I remember a little kitchen in the corner of the classroom. <laughs> um, but other than that, I don't really have very many memories from when I was a kid. No. School in my whole life. Like what, in first whatever grade or kindergarten. Have, yeah. Any first day. I don't really remember much at all. Um, maybe today was the day that I was looking to convert. I don't, I don't really remember anything about it. Any memories of, of any first day of school ever? Not really. Sorry. I have no memories. <laughs> I don't have anything. My brother cried. That's all I have. <laughs> As someone who thinks a lot about student experience in my classroom, it was a little disappointing to hear how few people had any memories of their first days of school. I couldn't help but theorize. Was the first day of school traumatic or so bad that people repressed the memories of it? Or was it just really boring? Fortunately, at least a few people had super positive memories of the first day of school. I remember the smell of crayons crayons and those lollipops the mixed colored ones that are orange green and like white or red and green and white when i was little my dad used to buy them all the time so the first thing i remember about waking up is probably eggs the smell of eggs and crayons <laughs> that's my first memory of going to school and being better than everyone else no, i'm just kidding <laughs> it was just a lot of fun first day of school that's actually my first ever memory like the first my first memory, the earliest one, is me waking up for school, getting my backpack, picking up my crayons, and sniffing them. <laughs> I love the smell of fresh crayons. Those are my memories, yeah. Awesome. What about you? Mine, I just remember not wanting to leave my mother. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I've always been okay, a mama's girl. <laughs> As a bit of a contrast to the student experience, I also interviewed a few teachers that showcased the variety of ways teachers are really approaching these first days of school. To start, we have a teacher newer to her career in Dorchester, Massachusetts, another teacher who also plays the role of dean at her school in the Bronx, and last, a veteran teacher and activist from the mountains of Western North Carolina. While there are definitely some common threads, like not sleeping the night before, it became clear to me how our different social and political contexts really shape these first days. So to start, we've got Spencer Jones from Dorchester, Massachusetts. I'm Spencer Jones. I teach 10th grade world history and 11th grade uh, AP seminar as of this year to sophomores and juniors at a small Catholic school in Dorchester, Massachusetts, which is, um, I guess, part of Boston, but kind of right below the right below central Boston. Um, my school serves exclusively low-income students, and we're pretty small. Uh, we've got a little bit less than 400 students in our school. So I'm somewhat trying something different this year. Um, this year, I decided that I would start by writing them a letter about how I think about learning history, um, which I think is pretty important because I think Unfortunately, a lot of students come into school thinking that, you know, history is about memorizing facts and dates, and um, they come in with some pretty cliche answers that they've learned from elementary school or middle school about why history is important. And I think this letter 
the letter that I've written this year tries to challenge that a little bit um, and kind of present them with a, a different alternative for what what we'll do in the classroom. Um, so this is, I've never written this, I've never read this particular letter before. I wrote it last week, um, so it's pretty new, um, but I'm going to read it to them on the first day of school, and then I'm going to have, um, I'm going to have them write me back um, with just some narratives about their lives. Um, so awesome. do you want to hear the letter? It's a page long. I would love to hear it. My third and final note about history has to do with the way we will study evil in this class. I have some bad news. There is a lot of it in world history. You have already learned about some of the most desperately cruel and tragic events in the past. You read Night last year, for example. Many of my past students have read histories like Elie Wiesel's and asked, how can such evil people do the things they do? I want to challenge you to reframe this question as well. We will learn a lot more about history and about human beings, dead and living, if we ask, how can people who truly believed that they were not evil do evil things? This is a more challenging but also a more rewarding question because it will allow us to more deeply and valuably critique those people in the past who did things that today disgust us. I am reminded of two of the most powerful statements I heard from my history teachers. First, there are some good people in the world with very bad ideas. Second, a critique without empathy is no critique at all. I look forward to our journey together. Best, Miss Jones. So, Spencer, what's going on for you the night before school? Oh, I don't sleep at all. <laughs> <laughs> Do you I, get, I get very, like, I'm an introvert. Like, I'm an introvert that can play well at being an extrovert. But, like, meeting 55 new, new sophomores that I really have never met before feels extremely overwhelming and um like I study their names I I study their pictures on power school with their names so that I'm not completely blind to who is who in the classroom because then it would just take me way too long to learn names but then I'm like nervous that I'm going to pronounce somebody's name wrong and I'm going to worry I worry that I mix people up and I usually only ever know like the first name for the first week of school so I worry a lot about names I worry a lot about like just teaching is, te I mean, teaching is hard when you don't have that established relationship yet with the kids. And so, like, it doesn't take that long to build, but I, I don't sleep at night the night before school starts because I wish I was already at that point. My name is Misha Jemson. I currently work in the South Bronx at Mott Haven Academy Charter School. Um, this is my seventh year in education, so this year I'm serving as a dean of students, focusing specifically on um, student behavior support, as well as like school culture events and centers. The first few days are so focused on like building classroom culture, relationships with um, between students and staff. Um, my school specifically focuses on a lot of like restorative practices. So, right, the first six weeks of school are specifically around, like, relationships, expectation setting, uh, using our restorative practices, like effective statements, circles, conferences, leveraging our spaces, like advisory, pride group, which is, like, a gender affinity uh, space. Um, and then our community meetings, 
to really get kids infested in the classroom. So in fact, I actually am about to leave part two of the PD at 1.30. We're talking about like just tier one supports, meaning like all students have access to this. And a lot of what we're talking about is the ways that we'll build culture uh, and relationships through our academics, through our routines, period by period, helping kids understand who we are as individuals and helping them connect with us. It sounds like school culture is really important to your community. Could you just describe a little bit more about what that means? Sure. Um, We are definitely focused on building a school environment that helps nurture students, um, specifically around like being good people. Like your academics are important. We want you to be in rigorous classrooms where you're being pushed rigorously and you're thinking about content and you're making connections. Um, There's even like this year we're moving towards a blended learning model in various classrooms. Uh, But above all else, like the social emotional learning is equally important because we recognize, especially I'm working in a trauma informed school with students with various experiences, both like in foster care, the immediate community, um, needing preventative services, et cetera. Uh, It's just thinking about what are the ways that we help students see the best in themselves, see the best in each other, and look forward to being citizens in the world. What kinds of things are you preparing for for a student who might be experiencing trauma or have experienced trauma? Right. Um, The first day of school to them, actually, I just read an article on this that was posted on MindShift, uh, just thinking about, like, when you go back to school and you say, how was your summer? That's actually a pretty loaded question for students, right? So you want to ask more neutral questions just around, like, how are you? Um, Do you notice anything new about the building? Are you looking forward to jumping back into class? into class or the school community. Uh, So when I think about just preparing for students, both who might have experienced trauma or just have been out of the building, the first things I always want to do is make sure like our displays are up. So classroom setup is finished. Um, And then again, in the capacity that I serve at my school, I always want to ensure that um, staff are very clear on like their school their classroom culture plan, like what are your routines, what are your procedures, what events can kids look forward to academically in your class, are you doing anything social with students, Um, same thing with behaviorally, like how do you celebrate student behaviors that are on vision, how do you help guide students when they are off vision, and not Again, from a restorative lens, we're never trying to tear students down. We always want to build them up and say, like, hey, you're doing well right now, or you're not meeting the vision right now. How do we guide you back on track? Uh, So, again, when I think about that first day of school, it is a mixed experience for students. They go through a wave of emotions. You're sad to be away from family and your routine of, like, sleeping in late if you had that luxury. Um, you might be really excited to jump back into school because you're with your regular friends that you see during the year, or you might be feeling anxious because you realize like, maybe I don't fit in the way I want to. And now I have to be in this space all the time. So I think it really is about meeting students where they are listening and observing really carefully. 
um, allowing students to share, using effective statements to just talk about how you feel so that you're modeling it for kids. And then they can then feel open enough to be vulnerable with you to share their authentic feelings. Can I ask what effective statements are? I just, I'm not familiar with that term. Sure. Yeah, you might have heard them um, be referred to as I statements. So it's literally like, I feel blank when I see blank, right? So it's just naming the impact of an action on you uh, rather than talking about someone's intrinsic value. When I saw you, Abby, call me on time and let me know that you had a technical issue, it made me feel really valued because you thought highly enough of me to talk to me about what was going on instead of leaving me in the dark. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely... uh, I heard someone say earlier in the session that, like, I've been doing a lot of these restorative things and I just never characterized it as such. I just thought it was good practice, but ultimately we have to create spaces that allow people to authentically connect, right? And feel safe enough to be who they are because that's when you, that's when the real learning takes place and that's when the real relationship building takes place. But so complicated to create, you know? Yep. And it takes time. It really does take time. But the first step is the dedication, right? Like you have to know that, um, number one, either you have staff who are, um, have been trained on it and have experience on it, or they have the desire to say, I have, this is not something that I have done or I haven't done well in the past, but I have the desire to become better at it. Um, so the mindset is really important as well. What kinds of feelings come up for you before the first day of school? That's so funny. Um, I also go through a wave of emotions. I feel grief like, oh no, we're going into the cold months. Um, And I also have to just think about my self-care as the seasons change. Um, I feel excitement to see my kids uh, because, and no matter what space I've been in, this is my third school now, I'm always excited to see like what the year brings and uh, watch students grow and evolve as people. Um, I feel the night before I generally can't sleep. So I feel anxious, like, oh, I don't want to be late. And then when it's time to sleep, it's five o'clock five o'clock so they have 45 minutes you know so it's just this nervous excitement of getting the year started um and connecting both with students and staff and really jumping into the work like uh as both someone who has taught um who has done out of classroom work who has had like secondary leadership roles and like primary leadership uh all of it to me is just about being present and being mindful Uh, and having the best intentions both for students and for myself. It's really okay to own it and say like, hmm, actually, I'm feeling a little nervous about this, or I'm really excited to jump into this, or just taking an an honest stock of like, if there are certain classroom principles, like discipline, management, control, influence, and engagement, what are the things that I know I want to set personal goals for for the year as far as um, enhancing my execution and what are the things that I feel really comfortable that I do well and I want to continue doing well because it's what's good for my students and unfortunately I feel like we're so rushed at the beginning of the year that we don't right. have the time yeah I also think it's like um, depending on your school setting like what the priority 
for the year is, right? Like if you have a state of the school address that kind of addresses the big rocks, so to speak, and how your professional development goals align to that. But also just knowing that we don't exist in a bubble, like we interact with others. I might have been strong at this in a different setting, but now because my setting has changed, I I need more support with this, also being mindful of that. Uh, I know that I'm working with a behavior team and also a social emotional team. Uh, So we are thinking about mindset conversations that we may potentially need to have with folks, Uh, but also ways of just like celebrating folks doing the work that we do. Because to be in education really is human service, right? And anytime you're in a human service position, you do need to be thinking about your self-care your long and short-term goals and the ways that you are immersed in a community that really helps you to actualize who you want to become. My name is John DeVille. I am a a teacher here in Macon County, which is in Western North Carolina, way up in the mountains. Uh, We're in the shadow of the Blue Ridge, just an hour's drive from the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Uh, I teach in a school, Franklin High School, a school of 1,000 students. I am an American history teacher and had taught a philosophy class uh, for 20 years. I think the first 15 years at least of teaching American history, I would read a different survey um, every summer um, and try to get a fresh look uh, at, at a narrative. Um, and would intentionally read stuff that uh, maybe uh, that would be an author or a perspective that I might not agree with. Do something to to reshuffle the deck because I think one of the biggest dangers for teachers, especially I think in the social sciences, is becoming stale and just teaching the old lesson, and then it, it lacks the passion and it lacks the emotional authenticity. So there's some sort of ritual I certainly go through to try to invigorate it. Um, it's, it's, it's always going to be new to the kids and they've never had me before, but if I'm not constantly reinventing myself, if I'm not constantly reinventing the lessons, then the passion isn't there and that comes across. So John, I know you were pretty involved in some of the activism happening for teachers in North Carolina that kind of culminated in a pretty large protest at the end of last year or at the end of last school year. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how that might be impacting teachers as they're walking into a a new school year. First of all, I think it's it's pretty difficult for me to speak to how most teachers think, all teachers think. I can tell you how some teachers think that I'm talking to you. I mean, we, we, de- we developed uh, on May 16th a tremendous amount of energy, and we were all gobsmacked by the amount of energy that we generated. We never thought in our wildest dreams, even three or four weeks before the march, that there was going to be anything close to 30,000 teachers there. I mean, I was heavily involved in, you know, in following it. I was not one of the architects of the march. I was not one of the planners of the march. And if you if you go back just two months before the march happened, you know, there was uh, the optimistic estimate was maybe five thousand people might show up. And so when the buses rolled in, another bus rolled in, and another bus rolled in. You know, sixty four percent of the students in North Carolina 
weren't able to attend class because we were in Raleigh. So it was, you know, in terms of teacher participation, it was huge. One of the things that I feel, and a lot of the teachers that I'm talking to feel, is this big question of what's next. So we did the march, what's next? And um, because you're broadcasting in New York, and it's unlikely that some of the power our brokers here in North Carolina might be listening, but I'll, I, and if they do, that's I'll, I'll have to get over it, and I'll get over it. But there's there's some tension here among the activist set as to what we should do next. And there's there's some folks that say, okay, quote unquote, that window is closed, and we've got to to move on to the next thing, and that next thing is working on the November elections. Uh, I'm certainly all in favor of working on the elections. I, I believe teachers participating in the electoral process to whatever extent that they're able or feel led to, I think that's important. But when you don't have a statewide race, and we don't have any statewide races this cycle, I think it's hard to have focused energy and efforts that are really going to be fruitful at the ballot box when it comes to teachers participating in a process, other than teachers getting, you know, going out themselves to vote and trying to persuade their friends to vote and vote for candidates who are friendly to public education. So the group I've been working with, Red for Ed NC, and you can find us at redforednc.com, we've been about trying to take that energy that we believe is out there and answer the uh, question of, of what's next. So we wrote a declaration. The, the, the declaration is called in, Declara- uh, in Defense of North Carolina's School Children, and we published that the first week of July. And now we have – there's 116 school districts in North Carolina, and we have 105 signers of that declaration across the state. And uh, that's a pretty big deal. Is, you know, It takes longer to get from Murphy to Manio in North Carolina than it does from Raleigh to Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we are incredibly spread out, and we are diverse. And Red for Red NC is about grabbing that energy that's out there that we feel maybe the traditional – Advocacy groups just aren't positioned really to do it. It's not that they don't think it's important, but they're not really positioned to do it. So we did the declaration, and what we have coming up uh, a week from today, August 24th, is across the state there will be eight press conferences, and one of them will be right here in Franklin where we will formally hand over uh, the declaration to elected officials. So we have invited elected officials from across the state. We know that a lot of them aren't going to show up, but we are going to be in the public square. We will here in Macon County be on the Macon County courthouse steps, and we will discuss what's in that declaration and why we're doing what we're doing, and we hope that at least one elected official will, will show up and then from that point, we're focused on getting more people to commit to some sort of collective action, and we're focused either on a statewide meeting in Raleigh in January or possibly regional meetings. We are, we're in a flux right now. We are in the middle of um, trying to align all the major advocacy groups in North Carolina, so we're all, you know, maybe we're not singing off the same sheet of music in terms of individual tactics, but overall we have a coordinated strategy and overall we have a coordinated goal. That's a powerful way to start the year. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a busy way to start the year, so that's, a, that's why, you know, my, my room still looks like Hurricane Katrina 
uh, came through. Of course, it, it normally looks something like that. A lot of schools will start the year with some sort of professional development just for teachers before students arrive. Is there anything interesting happening in Macon County? The first day that every single teacher in Macon County schools absolutely has to be back, every Macon County teacher will be here at my school Monday morning at 9 o'clock, and we will go from 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock doing an active shooter drill. Uh, we will be learning how to use man-down bags. We'll do our bloodborne pathogens training and, and, and some other stuff. So we've got one whole day devoted strictly to uh, student and school security. We've got, uh, I've got a brand new fence right outside my window that's not been there for the past 23 years. So now I've got a 10-foot black chain link fence right outside my window. Wow. So is there, does that feel like a real sort of tension, like a fear about potential danger, gun violence? That's, I think that's kind of hard to quantify. I, I, you know, I think in many ways we're kind of frogs in boiling water or frogs, not in boiling water, but in gradually increasingly, uh, increasing heat water. So, I mean, just to, we had three or four events last spring that just kind of went boom, 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 boom. So there was Parkland, and that, of course, you know, I think because of where Parkland was and who the Parkland students were, I, I, that shooting obviously had a different impact on the national psyche compared to the previous school shootings. So that happened, and then we had an incident where we think we almost had a school shooting here. We had a, we had a pair of students. They had a list, a hit list, that was discovered on a school bus. The, the law enforcement went to the kids' home, found a stash of weapons, and then the, the third part was they had the day picked out that they wanted to do the shooting. So that was deeply unsettling. And then after school had mostly dismissed for the summer, we had just a couple of kids straggling behind taking some makeup exams. Out at our alternative school, we had a a, a gentleman, I think in his 50s or so, he didn't have any weapons, but he certainly seemed to have ill will towards the school. And, he, you know, he didn't have any relatives, any students, any family members, either uh, student body or faculty. He was just a, a mentally disturbed individual uh, who was acting in a threatening manner towards school personnel immediately outside the building, school resource officer on site. And it took him five times of five charges from the taser to bring the gentleman down. Uh, and, he, and as they were handcuffing him, he kept saying, I didn't hurt anybody, did he? I didn't hurt anybody, did I? So those combination, that, that triptych of events of Parkland and then the almost shooting here at Franklin High School and then the incident out at Union Academy, that really kind of forced the school board in the central office's hand to uh, spend some substantial money on improving school security. So by December, all the doors here will be electronic. All the students will be carrying cards to be able to get in and out of buildings in between classes. Uh, the campus will be under a lot tighter lockdown, and we've got chain link fence. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I posted the man down bag this morning, and my former social studies teacher chimed in, quote, I can't process it. And uh, I was thinking, what's what am I going to be reading on social media when I'm 75 that I won't be able to process?
On further episodes of Educators Out Loud, get excited to hear from teachers who teach and work in schools every day and all of our personal reflections and analysis about what's happening in our classrooms. A special thank you to Misha, Spencer, and John. Please follow me at Educators Out Loud on Twitter and Facebook. I would love story suggestions and any thoughts or comments about what you heard today. Thanks so much for listening.